This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Good morning and welcome to the American Health Lawyers Association's Antitrust Practice Group program on the recent St. Luke Hospital versus ProMedica Health System decision out of the Sixth Circuit. Recently, as many of you antitrust healthcare antitrust practitioners must, when watchers must know, the Sixth Circuit panel vacated a preliminary injunction in joining a health system from removing a competing health system from its integrated insurance company's network. Today's program is designed to give some brief background on this case in terms of facts, arguments, and defenses and also some takeaways for healthcare providers and managed care systems, as well as their counsel. We have a special treat today. We're joined by two healthcare antitrust specialists. First, Doug Litvak, who is a partner just (laughs) recently at Jenner and Block, who specializes in antitrust counseling and litigation with a particular focus on healthcare and consumer products. And as a special treat, he was also counsel to ProMedica in this case. Before entering private practice, he was a trial attorney at the FTC, analyzing challenging mergers, including participating in noteworthy enforcement actions in the healthcare sector. We're also joined by Barbara Sicolades, and excuse me, Barbara, if I mispronounced that, (laughs) I tortured your name, but Barbara is a partner at Troutman & Pepper, and she counsels clients on antitrust and competition issues as well as representing clients in civil and criminal antitrust litigation, and also does a great deal of antitrust work in the healthcare sector. And lastly, um, your moderator, um, I won't have that much to contribute to this conversation, but I'm a member of the Antitrust Practice Group of American Health uh, Lawyers, uh, Health Law Association, and I am a counsel at Shook Hardy in Bacon in San Francisco, where I specialize in business litigation for focus on antitrust consumer protection issues. And without further ado, um, I'll start the conversation by first turning it over to Doug, who will give us a brief recap on the case, um, the facts of the specific case in front of of the circuit court, as well as a brief discussion on the background um, of the case, including uh, the FTC investigation and enforcement action that kind of led to this in a roundabout way. Doug? You know, thanks, Steve. Uh, so the story begins in 2010 when ProMedica acquires St. Luke's. It then goes through a long battle with the FTC, ultimately ending up divesting St. Luke's per an FTC order. And as part of that divestiture, ProMedica had to lend temporary and extraordinary support to St. Luke's to get it back on its feet as an independent hospital. And part of that support was giving it um, in-network contracting status to its insurance company, Paramount. And and it had to do that for at least three years. However, there was a provision that said that if St. Luke's underwent a change in control, that ProMedica no longer had to keep St. Luke's in its insurance network. And so that, then in 2018, um, one year before that, that, that contract expired, um, Prometica and St. Luke's engaged in a discussion over Prometica having a cancer center on St. Luke's campus. And in exchange, Prometica agreed 
to extend the Paramount insurance contract relationship with St. Luke's until 2023 to align with the cancer center relationship. However, Prometica negotiated and St. Luke's agreed that the change in control provision would still apply that was in the FTC um, divestiture agreement. And then in 2020, uh, McLaren Health System, a large vertically integrated system based in Michigan, acquired St. Luke's, um, triggering the change in control provision, which then Prometica responded by sending out termination notices to St. Luke's saying that it would no longer be in its insurance network. And then what ended up happening is that, St that McLaren St. Luke sued, claiming an antitrust violation for allegedly terminating the, the insurance contracts with, um, with Paramount. And what ended up happening is the district court agreed and preliminarily enjoined the contract saying that Prometica had a duty to deal with um, McLaren St. Luke's despite the change in control provision. And we ultimately for Prometica appealed that decision and were successful in the um, Sixth Circuit persuading the Sixth Circuit that there was no duty to deal under the antitrust laws. And so that's, that's the quick version of the facts in this case. And um, I'll turn it over to Barbara to explain the, the theory of harm. All right. Well, first, congratulations, Doug, on the win, though. I know the case isn't over yet, so it's not over. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you to count your chickens before they hatch, but nicely done. Um, so the theory of harm in the case is not, um, you know, as I wasn't a part of the case, right? So based on the materials that I've read, the theory of harm um, is not entirely clear, but what the plaintiff seems to be focused on is that um, they are um, the best alternative, the closest alternative to the plaintiff's um, healthcare provider in that region. And that the, uh, to the defendant, sorry, to ProMedica, and that ProMedica um, has allegedly taken certain steps that have pushed the plaintiff to sort of the edge of its competitiveness and its ability to be competitively relevant in the geography. Um, they also focus on the fact that uh, according to the complaint, uh, ProMedica um, is high cost and doesn't have um, particularly high quality ratings while um, their system, St. Luke's, is uh, purportedly the lower cost provider um, and that they at St. Luke's has high quality metrics. So it paints the picture, right? That St. Luke's is on the edge of competitive relevance, which as I said, um, the complaint suggests is in part, at least in part, um, the fault of actions taken by ProMedica um, allegedly anti-competitive actions, including payer agreements that excluded St. Luke's, and this is before the termination, um, 
gutting St. Luke's during the merged period and uh, barring some physicians from practicing at St. Luke's. These are allegations, whether they're true or not, I can't um, speak to. And also um, imposing debt on St. Luke's um, that as a result of the merger being unwound was burdensome. And that there was going to be a loss of access to volume with the termination by Paramount. And that that loss of access sort of put St. Luke's over the edge of being able to be an effective competitive restraint on Paramount. I'm sorry, not on Paramount, on ProMedica. So I'm using more words to describe this than, um, although not as with, with the same amount of specific detail as the complaint. And so maybe I'm filling things in or reading between the lines in a way that, you know, Doug will tell me um, is either wrong or that he disagrees with one or the other. Um, but in my view, that is what the focus of the plaintiff's um, harm theory is, which is currently we are competitively relevant, but we are hanging on um, by our thumbs or fingertips and that this loss of access to the paramount volume will put us closer to or maybe over the edge of being competitively relevant. And that in addition to that, the loss of any market share um, by St. Luke's will be, uh, will cause harm to the public, to the consumers um, because, and they rely on studies in their complaint for um, the evidence for this, which is that um, with any market, increased market concentration comes necessarily higher rates. And therefore, even if St. Luke's, um, or I should say, even if ProMedica only gains a, a share or two or three um, from St. Luke's loss of access to Paramount, that will result in some measurable harm to the consumers through higher rate, uh, higher rates, and and the loss of access to the patients specifically, members specifically, who will be forced to use in their argument, um, forced to use Promedica instead of having the ability to turn to St. Luke's. So that's my understanding of the theory of harm. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing Doug's um, response to the theory of harm um, and and um, the defenses that they launched in the case. Um, I mean, Barbara, you, you did a good job because the complaint is long, confusing, and has lots of various allegations that don't seem to tie into any specific theory of harm. And um, what the plaintiff, in my view, is trying to do is say, you know, this is a monopolization case. This is a case where ProMedica allegedly is a monopolist and they see a threat of a new competitor emerging and they're engaging in various conduct to eliminate that threat. And that'll actually feed into what I think the key defense is for ProMedica 
and was our key message throughout the case, which is this is simply competition on the merits. Um, and consumers benefit when firms compete. And that's all that Prometica is doing here is engaging in vigorous competition with a new strong competitor with deep pockets. And that will benefit consumers. Um, and in fact, what the court did by enjoining a part of that competition, the court um, essentially stopped healthy competition that will benefit consumers. And that's like thematically what the defense that Prometica brought in the district court and then persuaded the Sixth Circuit was correct. And you know, the, the case in front of the Sixth Circuit focused and centered in on whether it was unlawful for Prometica to terminate the Paramount contracts. And that claim falls into the category of what we call as antitrust lawyers, like duty to deal or refusal to deal claims. And the antitrust laws generally impose no duty to deal with a competitor absent extraordinary circumstances that are found in the Aspen skiing case. And there's a very narrow test to show those extraordinary circumstances. And Prometica's defense was all along that the plaintiffs didn't satisfy any element, let alone all the elements to meet that defense. And particularly Prometica argued and the Sixth Circuit agreed that there was no like prior voluntary course of dealing with the plaintiffs because Prometica never agreed to deal with St. Luke's if it underwent a change of control and never agreed to deal with McLaren St. Luke's, which is a decidedly different competitor by the plaintiff's own complaint. And that, that fact alone, we felt, and the Sixth Circuit agreed, was dispositive. Um, in rejecting their claim that this could be an antitrust violation. And to add, there needs to also be a profit sacrifice, meaning Prometica needs to be engaging in behavior that makes no business sense, but for its anti-competitive motive. And we put forth a ton of evidence suggesting that this was profit maximizing behavior, competition on the merits, because Prometica is a provider, first and foremost, of healthcare services and uses its insurance arm to really drive volume to Prometica providers. So it was completely profitable to terminate a relationship with a different provider who could siphon off patients from Prometica facilities to their facilities, destroying the value of having the vertically integrated health plan as part of its provider system. Did and, you think, yeah, did you okay. think that um, the district court judge believed the second prong of the test in Aspen Ski was met by the fact that, well, if it wasn't a profitable relationship, they wouldn't have had it um, to begin with. And that struck me as a bit of a problem because if that alone is enough evidence, then you, know, you basically turn the narrow Aspen skiing into a big wide open gate. Um, but was, is that, that was how I understood the case was presented. And I'd be curious if that's true and how it was that the court, um, Sixth Circuit and District Court addressed that. 
You know, that's exactly right. So the, the district court latched on to the 2018 renewal that I mentioned in the, the overview of the facts where Prometica um, and St. Luke's extended the Paramount relationship in connection hey. with the cancer center relationship. And so the district court said, oh, because you did this in 2018, it shows this was a profitable relationship and now you're only terminating it to harm um, McLaren St. Luke's and you're sacrificing profits. And the district court just misunderstood the facts and the changed circumstances. It overlooked the significance of McLaren acquiring St. Luke's. And that's what the Sixth Circuit shows. It says Prometica in the 2018 renewal knew that it didn't want to do business with St. Luke's if it was acquired by another entity. That's why it made sure that the change of control provision existed. And that's a fact that district court overlooked. And that was why in part the Sixth Circuit reversed. And how, mu how much of your argument rested on the notion that, or I should say, <laughs> how would you have handled the case if it wasn't McLaren, if it was a smaller, less, uh, well-funded, um, less flexible, uh, non-vertically integrated, perhaps, provider who was either um, entering into some sort of an affiliation that resulted in a change of control. I actually didn't go back to read the change of control provision, so I'm not sure what qualified as change of control in the agreement. But No, that's a good question. It's something, too, that I was thinking about in preparation for oral argument, um, and I don't think the outcome changes because that the change in control provision applied to any change in control. Um, and just the existence of that provision suggested that the parties only viewed the relationship as profitable if St. Luke's remained St. Luke's. It didn't undergo any change in control. So the minute it underwent a change in control, that just changed the, the calculus of having the relationship. And from there, you can't impose a duty to deal because you're not um, engaging in conduct that doesn't make business sense. It's completely rational to terminate the contract because you negotiated for that provision. I'd also say, I know you're, I mean, not that your briefs weren't fantastic, um, but the amicus brief that was filed by the um, economists was um, pretty straightforward. It's much shorter than the party's briefs. And if people are interested in sort of understanding the pro-competitive arguments for the termination, um, that's a, I, th I found that really helpful um, and actually a pretty quick read. So um, for folks who are interested in, in more on the sort of economic theory behind the pro-competitive arguments. Um, Steve, I think you wanted us to cover also some of the government enforcement questions. Do you yeah. want to? Yeah. Okay. I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, we know um, if we've been following tech um, that with the Biden administration, there's a new increased vigor and focus on antitrust enforcement, especially at the FTC. Um, a lot of the folks has been on tech, but we've also seen that in healthcare, and a lot of the policy pronouncements have been targeted at healthcare. So, Barbara, I'll have you lead off the discussion on this. Do you see the government um, picking up in adopting um, this theory of harm, perhaps probably using different arguments and looking for different cases? 
Um, but do you think this is something folks should, um, folks in the air, folks in the industry, either healthcare providers or managed care providers, uh, should watch for increased government activity um, in whether it's the FTC, DOJ, or state AGs? So I definitely wouldn't think that federal or state enforcement would be interested in this specific case. I mean, in interested in becoming involved in or um, because obviously the FTC was integrally involved in the consent decree and um, I'm sure has been um, concerned and, uh, you know, following um, the market generally. So the geography generally. So wouldn't think the specific case. I think the theory of harm. So I think refusal to deal is a really difficult argument um, for any plaintiff. And I have plenty of clients who raise the issue and, you know, we dig into it, we look at it, and it is a hard argument to make under the existing antitrust laws um, and the ways in which um, they've been applied and the economic theories that we have relied on for the last many years in interpreting our antitrust laws. I do think um, that there is some suggestion or indication, um, hints from the agencies that um, they are more concerned about vertical mergers. So it is a real possibility that vertically integrated um, transactions will get closer looks, ones that involve a, a significant healthcare provider acquiring a substantial um, health insurance um, entity. I think that um, they will have concern with some of the potential harms that were alleged in the complaint. If in fact, um, they continue down this road of sort of big is bad. Um, I don't know that, um, that, there, that, that, that causation um, necessarily goes from the allegations that were made. So the sort of alleged competitive harm that would have occurred for consumers. I don't know that that necessarily was caused by the actions of ProMedica. And so fundamentally, I think the theory is a difficult one. And I don't think that the agency is going to are going to pick up on the theory in a context like this one. On the other hand, as I said, I do think they're very concerned about large healthcare providers and they're concerned about consolidation and they're concerned about the vertical elements of it. So I think situations like this where a vertically integrated dominant provider acts, um, I think they will be interested in them, whether I don't see them running to bring a lot of enforcement actions, but I think if the right case came along and they felt that a provider was tipped to the point where they could no longer be competitively relevant, I think they might look at it. Here you've got McLaren backing up the um, plaintiff. It's kind Ooh. of, I don't know that, I don't know that they would use enforcement you know, limited resources to pursue a case where there is a very well-funded plaintiff who can, you know, work to improve their despite the loss of um, the volume from the Paramount relationship. There are probably different facts. Uh, maybe one thing you brought up too, probably 
maybe not in a pure refusal to deal case, but some of the similar issues, concerns about vertical integration and the health system with integrated um, health plan. Narrow um, networks and also yeah. narrow networks. I think it's, um, I think that it's possible um, that if somebody uses narrow networks as a weapon and they can't demonstrate the benefit that typically can flow from a narrow network. Yeah. I have lots of clients. I mean, I represented OSF healthcare system in um, the seventh circuit in a case related to narrow networks. And, you know, you can economically prove whether they benefit um, the consumers or not and whether they harm competition. And so I think in cases where narrow networks don't demonstrably have benefit like that, that could be an area they would focus in when there's a, particularly if there's a vertically integrated defendant. They've highlighted non-competes and they've highlighted um, concentration and clearly, right, there are allegations here that, you know, um, Prometica controls um, the the providers and doesn't allow providers to practice at St. Luke's who want to. So there are definitely pieces of the theory that I could see the agency having an interest in. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was a pattern allegation, but you know, Doug, it, and we're going off the agenda right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I did, I mean, was part of the plaintiff's case that this was part of a pattern of anti-competitive conduct? And how did they um, you know, articulate that in the, in the case, in their briefing or in arguments? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Yes, yeah. So, so the the plaintiffs primarily have a monopolization case where they're claiming that Prometica is engaged in an overall scheme to significantly weaken um, McLaren, St. Luke's, or put them out of business. And one component of that is the refusal to deal on the insurance, but there's other conduct, conduct that both Barbara and you have pointed to, Steve, that's in the complaint. Um, and, you know, the antitrust laws require a pretty rigorous analysis of that conduct. And, you know, I guess I like to use the phrase monopoly broth to describe like, you know, incoherent um, theories of grab bag acts that are innocuous on their own, but you put them together into this broth to create a monopolization claim. Then, you know, that's what the plaintiffs have done. That's what we told the Sixth Circuit. And, you know, antitrust law requires that you define a market, you show that there's specific acts within that market that harm competition in that market, and all these acts that you're referring to occur outside the relevant market, and the plaintiffs repeatedly pointed to acts outside the relevant market to try to prove their case, um, just to create confusion. And, you know, what we did in response is really be disciplined about how the right way to apply the antitrust laws is, which is define the market, look at the acts within the market and see whether there's harm. And that's where the plaintiffs really failed here. The district court was almost exclusively focused on the healthcare, um, the provision of healthcare market and not on the um, insurance side at all. So looking at the share of Paramount, it was barely, it really was ignored um, for lar- in large part in the district court's decision, not in the um, appellate court decision, not in the Sixth Circuit. But yeah, I mean, it was very clear. The whole complaint really is um, focused on the dominance in the healthcare side and not at all um, on the um, insurance side. Mm, that's interesting. Well, 
I mean, I guess now is a good time to end it off uh, for a discussion on what the next steps and also importantly, um, what are the takeaways um, for folks in this industry, either on the provider side or on the managed care side? And I'll turn it over to Barbara um, to lead that off, followed by Doug. Sure. So obviously, right, um, we have a, a government, the White House, and the um, enforcement agencies who are very interested in the industry, as well as a lot of state um, regulators or enforcers. So um, I think my takeaways are not necessarily um, just related to this case, but these sorts of decisions, right, um, that providers and payers make. So one, I think it's always smart to be honest about the reasons for your decisions when those decisions might harm a competitor. And it seems like um, from the um, record and the decision and the opinions anyway, that ProMedica was pretty clear um, about why it was making this decision and didn't shy away from the fact that it had to do with um, the change in the nature of the competitor that was gonna be entering the market. So I think honesty in um, why you're making decisions that can hurt a competitor is always a good practice. Mm -hmm. I think when you're narrowing a network or asking for a narrower network, regardless of whether you're on the payer side or you're on the provider side, um, the hoped for benefits from a narrower network should be clearly stated. Um, it should be, um, you know, even if it means um, preparing internal documents that lay out the reasons for the decision. Sometimes, um, if you can, I like to have my clients actually do the math of their decision. So, I mean, obviously, sometimes you can't do that, right? You're not going to go necessarily conduct an economic analysis of something. But if we're making a decision um, that could harm a competitor and it's a significant decision, I think um, not only documenting your reasons internally, um, but laying out the facts and support of your decision and even um, you know, in a draft format, trying to do some of the math for that reason mm -hmm. is really helpful when you're talking to courts that have um, lack of experience in the healthcare space in particular, <laughs> but perhaps even lack of experience in business. I mean, there are lots of um, decision makers who've never actually worked directly with a business. That doesn't mean they're not competent to make the decisions, but this helps them to see why the decision was made and that it wasn't made um, you know, with the thought or um, with any thought other than that we're gonna be better at, we, at what we do, we're gonna be able to help um, our payers and our patients. And I think when you're a vertically integrated health system or payer, um, you should really consider who's delivering the messages for you in the meetings when you're interacting with someone who, um, a potential plaintiff. And um, frankly, uh, when I'm in, the, in these sorts of situations, um, some firewalls, are useful. Um, I don't mean necessarily official formal in all instances, but some sort of um, reflection that uh, it really was an important decision that um, wasn't just driven um, by the idea of the that a provider might want to harm its provider competitor in this context. So those are my um, my takeaways. I'd be interested in hearing Doug's. Yeah. 
And Doug, to the extent you feel comfortable, I know you're representing one of the parties, but to the extent you feel comfortable, if you could tell us specifically what are the next steps um, in this matter. I know recently a petition for your hearing was um, filed last week. Yeah. Um, yeah, let me, let me start with takeaways and I'll, I'll get to the next steps on the, on the matter. So, so my, my takeaways are that I think we'll see more monopolization cases um, both from the government and from private plaintiffs. Um, refusal to deal claims will be hard. I have my fingers crossed that someday Ashton skiing will get reversed, um, but uh, I don't think that's likely. Um, but monopolization cases are here to stay. And healthcare providers in particular, um, you know, typically operate in consolidated markets with few competitors by the nature of the business. They need to be on the lookout for those types of claims um, when making business decisions. And so I think from a takeaway perspective, um, it would be smart when you're engaging in any conduct that disadvantages a rival to um, think about the implications of that con conduct, talk to you know, your in-house counsel, maybe talk to outside antitrust counsel, just to make sure you understand the, the full landscape of risks. And if you're on the other side of the coin where you've been disadvantaged by a you know, potentially dominant player, you also might wanna seek what options you have by talking with in-house counsel and outside counsel um, to make sure that um, you're exploring all the available options that you have. Um, and so just on the next steps of the case, um, so the plaintiffs filed a petition for, for rehearing um, and just the, you know, just the chance of success on a petition for rehearing statistically falls between less than 3% of the cases. And I'll just point out that the decision was unanimous and contained uh, and was um, by the Chief Judge Sutton. And also joining in the decision was former Chief Judge Cole. Um, so we'll see what happens with the petition for rehearing, but just based on the statistics seems unlikely. Um, and then the the case, there's a larger monopolization case pending in the district court, and we'll need to work through those issues in light of the Sixth Circuit decision. But um, I can tell you that we, we've said this publicly, the, the case is meritless, and we've filed counterclaims, and we you know, and, and fully expect to prevail on, on all the claims. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, and we'll, you know, we understand, yeah, that's your position, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, folks from St. Luke's, welcome um, to contact us, and um, you know we'll, we can schedule something to give your side too um, as well. Uh, well, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, thanks. This was great. This was informative. I found this to be very helpful as a healthcare antitrust practitioner. Um, and for if you guys and for all the listeners out there, if you enjoyed this. Um, I would recommend joining, checking out the American Health Law Association and specifically the Antitrust Practice Group. We have a lot of informative programs like that, whether they're brief, quick, informal podcasts such as this or more formal webinars. And hopefully once we get after this pandemic, more in-person um, conferences um, and brown bags, as well as written publications, bulletins and alerts, which, which we try to put out frequently, which I think are very helpful um, for folks, whether you're a general antitrust practitioner, um, you know, healthcare, as these folks, as Doug and Barbara can tell you, healthcare antitrust, yeah, antitrust is antitrust, but due to the specific economics and the way at least healthcare distribution is set up in our country, there's certain specific 
um, issues um, that you have to deal with um, when you're um, advising or advising folks on either side of the V, of the, of v potentially uh, in the healthcare industry where it comes to antitrust that you need to be aware of. And if you're help, and if you practice in the other area of healthcare or your healthcare generalist, I guarantee you, you'll run into an antitrust issue <laughs> one of these days um, uh, for one of your clients. But um, thanks a lot. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Barbara. Um, this is very informative. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.